This is Faye Hartman, and you're listening to We Are Rivers, conversations about the rivers that connect us, a podcast series brought to you by American Rivers. We Are Rivers often focuses on the relationships that people have with rivers, the threats to those rivers, stories from the river, and the important policies and actions that impact rivers. But this episode is about the way a history of colonization and racial injustice in this country has built barriers between people and the rivers that course through their history, their culture, and being, and the spiritual and emotional connections that remain. For Cheryl Seavers Kale and the Waccamaw Indian people, Layers of erasure and oppression eroded that vital relationship between people and the river that they relied on. But for Cheryl, the impacts of displacement don't just live in the past. And it's essential to her that the connection Waccamaw Indian people still have with the river is strengthened. And that it's reestablished for the future of their communities and for the future of the Waccamaw River. Before we dive in, let's take a minute to get oriented. The ancestral lands of the Waccamaw Indian people surround the Waccamaw River in what today is the Northeast region of South Carolina. A significant portion of American River's work in South Carolina focuses on promoting the Waccamaw River Blue Trail, a locally led effort to galvanize support to protect the Waccamaw River. In our work to make sure that efforts on the Waccamaw River Blue Trail reflect the diversity of local residents who care about the river and are impacted by the river, we believe it's important to connect with the people who carry its name. This is how we met Cheryl Seavers-Kale, second chief of the Waccamaw Indian people. The ancestral lands of the Waccamaw Indian people is a landscape where history lives in the present where modern efforts to protect important tribal lands unearth the ancestral remains of tribes very much alive and dependent on those same lands. The modern-day hub of the Waccamaw Indian people is a 45-minute drive from Myrtle Beach and a world apart. Cheryl lives as a bridge between those worlds. Well, my name is Cheryl Kale. Um, a lot of people refer to me as Cheryl Fevers Kale because I just couldn't get rid of my former name, and so now it's a hyphenated name that I don't legally have, but um, I am the vice chief of the Waccamaw um, Indian people. Uh, I'm also the chair of Idle No More, which is a committee under the South Carolina Indian Affairs Commission. Um, and I live in Myrtle Beach um, in an area called Sacasee. And I just, for some reason, love the fact that I know Sacasee is... Um, what is a native Indian uh, name, um, and that I'm living in a place that my ancestors lived in and hunted in and, and thrived in for a time. Cheryl is one of those people whose mind never stops. She's a notary by day, the second chief of the Waccamaw Indian people, and the chair of the South Carolina Indian Affairs Commission's Idle No More Committee. She's an anthropologist and a historian in everything she does, and her drive to better understand her history and the history of the Waccamaw Indian people permeates her every interaction. When I catch up with her on a Thursday evening in September, she's just home after a long day, 
I went out over her dog and I asked her about the relationship between the Waccamaw Indian people and the river. So the connection for um, for the Waccamaw being river people, so to speak, um, it just it it's there. It's there as part of who we are. Um, there's the the debate about whether the Waccamaw um, River was named after the people or whether the people were named after the river. Um, and when I think about it in the sense of how would they have known to call it that unless the people that were there on the river told them what the name of the river was. And that would mean the Waccamaw had that deep of a connection with the river that it became who they were or it was who they were. Um, rivers are, in in our culture, rivers are a life source. And it's not just for us as, as two-legged creatures, but for four-legged creatures, for the fish, for the um, birds. And if you think about it, it makes complete sense because um, when you think about water, you think about body, uh, rivers or any body of water. Um, that's how it's referred to, a body of water. And it, it's a vein um, that feeds through the body, which is the land, and so necessary. So our relationship today is still as a steward, as um, having respect for that and caring for it. There's one particular place that I've drawn to having lived in that area is uh, um, the Wachasaw Landing. Um, it's part, you know, right down in Merle's Inlet. And, um, and because there have been remains that have been um, excavated from there. Um, it was a known burial site, uh, and those remains still are housed in Charleston Museum. Still, those remains have not been repatriated. They're still in the same place, and they have been for decades. We've been trying to get the remains released to repatriate them, bury, rebury them. And under NAGPRA, we don't we can't do anything as a state-recognized tribe because NAGPRA applies to federally recognized tribes. NAGPRA is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Like Cheryl said, it applies to federally recognized tribes. There is a process for repatriation to non-federally recognized tribes, but it is voluntary on the part of the museum that holds the collection, and non-federally recognized tribes do not have the same ability to compel a museum to repatriate. The Waccamaw Indian people were the first tribe to receive official recognition by the state of South Carolina. That happened in 2005. However, the Waccamaw Indian people are not a federally recognized tribe. In many ways, this disconnection between the Waccamaw people and the remains of their ancestors mirrors the way they were displaced and disconnected from the river. I feel sometimes that we're just on the outside watching as everything else happens. And, and so for so long, that's where we've been kind of pushed to the outside. And um, 
I would like to see that reconnection for our people. The Waccamaw Indian people were literally pushed from the river's edge. And, as is the case for indigenous people around the world, the impacts of colonization disconnected people from the landscapes where they root their culture, their history, and their stories. Often, gaping questions and gaps are what remain. It's, it's a lot of uh, trying to research something where you don't have a lot of documentation because things like that, just, they just weren't written down. Oral tradition is how things were uh, shared, and there's a huge break in that um, once you had the effort of genocide, essentially. Um, you can't really uh, maintain a culture when language is removed and there's fear for uh, retribution if you identify yourself as a group of people that are being that are being killed off and and unfortunately in the in the south particularly in the southeast we have um just very little because of the early encounters with colonists the historical part of where we were located this has been a challenge for me as far as the research and i think it's been a challenge for a lot of the um Researchers' uh, documentation is very limited. Uh, you have to look at everything all together, uh, piecing together things like your uh, maps. Um, and when you when you look at some of the historical documents, as far as what what I've uncovered in that, um, we were located about 80 miles north of Charleston at one point. Um, and so present day, that would be Polly's Island, Merle's Inlet, the Grand Strand. But then there were six villages at one point in 1715. I think it was the account that was given of about six to 800 uh, Waccamaw living in six villages. And so there's nothing documenting where those villages were. Um, so then you have to rely on archaeological evidence, and, and that's starting to come together. Trying to understand where the Waccamaw Indian people lived is one challenge, and trying to understand how they made decisions and related to one another within the tribe is even more difficult. And in no small part, that's because of historic encounters that were influenced by and filtered through the lens of white settlers. This is this is up for discussion with people. I I I've read a lot that there was a matriarchal um, society. I don't necessarily believe that existed um, when the colonists came, because you have to understand that women weren't considered by colonists to be somebody that they would engage with. So whether or not it was a matriarchal society, the decisions being made, I, I think the chiefs that were going to meet, to speak with governors, to, uh, to try to um, trade and make trade decisions, it, it was predominantly men. Um, and that 
is really it, we don't have a lot of of documentation of how the structure was. Um, we do know that there were female chiefs in different within different uh, tribes in this area. Similarly, this intentional erasure poses real challenges for people like Cheryl who want to understand how belief systems and spirituality of the tribe has changed over time. If I were to talk about the uh, uh, beliefs as far as historically ancestral beliefs, spirituality, it may look a little, uh, quite a bit different probably than today. Um, I do know that there there was an understanding of a great spirit, a creator, um, and that was shown through respect for the provisions, through everything that you had available to you, and and that the belief of animals having spirits themselves. Um, I have my own spiritual connection and it's an eagle and it's kind of a strong um, spiritual connection to that particular animal but it's more because of the representation of the eagle soaring and that is my actual tribal name soaring eagle bringing prayers to the creator to the great spirit rather Um, and that it's just something that I've always known I could do that. And I think because of being very young and believing very much that my prayers were heard, that it just fell, it fell on me. Within the tribe, not everybody has that um, same name. And, and there's different, different levels of belief, uh, but that doesn't discount their spirituality. They just believe, um, believe along a different line. Traditionally, there was definitely a connection with the spirit, the great spirit, uh, the grandfathers, uh, those that gave us wisdom and understanding, and and then also uh, the creator that provided. I believe again that they, our ancestors, looked at the rivers as body, a part of a body. And and that was so important. Um, spiritually, I can't go on a river a day or be even out there fishing on a river without feeling that connection. The deep respect and connection that the Waccamaw Indian people had to their land was, from the very first encounter with colonizers, threatened. Well, your earliest encounter... And that was, um, they tricked about 150 Indians uh, onto their boat um, with offers of, you know, shiny things, things that they uh, had never seen before. And then they took them and sailed away down to the Caribbean to trade them for um, as slaves. And uh, so that was in earliest uh colonialism I say or encounter. So it wasn't really colonialism. They attempted to uh establish a settlement and it failed. 
and that was later on um, on return. And then after that, the English um, successfully came over and, and, of course, claimed all the land from sea to shining sea. Um, and uh, quite a big swath of land. So uh, at that point, it was just a matter of the uh, tribes that were living in the location they were living would be um, pushed out um, because of the claim for land. So these villages ended up being overtaken by um, by those that wanted the land to establish plantations. The Waccamaw Indian people, other indigenous groups, and Africans were enslaved on plantations along the Waccamaw River and other rivers throughout the region. Rice was one of the many primary crops cultivated. Many of these rice fields remain intact and are still present on the river today. I most certainly know that there were Waccamaw that were enslaved. And the reason is it's because in that last encounter, um, it says that there were um, Waccamaw that were um, taken into, captured and taken into slavery. And there were also Waccamaw that were killed. Um, so how common was that? I absolutely believe that the early colony, before they really had the um, institution of African-American slavery, um, they, were trading, they were trading Indians. They were trading the Native Americans, the indigenous people. Uh, you can look at some of the historical newspapers and you can see where there's a runaway, uh, runaway Indian slave um, that they're offering a reward for. And um, and if you think about this whole thing, you're not counted as Indian once you're a slave. You, you, you're, you're just a piece of property. And so it was just either you were a free person, free person of color, um, or you were a slave, or you were white. That designation that slavery impacted our people, um, my great-great-great-great-grandfather and the John Demery that um, came and formed the Demery Settlement was listed as a free person of color with five other free persons of color. And my question when I first started really getting to research was, if he was a free person of color, does that mean that at one point in time, he wasn't free, and I believe that that's, that's the case. So as you see, there just, there's this movement of where should the Waccamaw Indian people live? And that is, um, it's pretty hard to be displaced and displaced to a point where you may end up being the... Um, the military front against hostile Indians, or you may be encroaching on land that was currently being used by another tribe that wasn't friendly. It's interesting when you think about it from the perspective of a 
a group of people just trying to survive and trying to find their place, and they just kept having a real difficult time because they were getting it from both, both sides. Through attempted genocide, enslavement, the loss of lands and connection, the Waccamaw Indian people lost some of their critical connections with the river. We don't have the same connection. I can say that. Um, as far as, as physically, um, a lot of that has to do with being um, removed from the area. <laughs> You're not on the Waccamaw River. But despite being removed from their lands, Cheryl and others remain deeply concerned about the river and the threats that it faces. There are some people that are tribal um, members that live on the river um, who have a lot of concerns because of development, because the the changes that are happening um, that are kind of taking away from the beauty of the river, um, threatening the wildlife, threatening the, the you know, flora and the fauna. Um, personally, for me, the relationship that I have with the rivers, I know that I, I don't want it to be polluted. Um, and, and that's partly because it, it should be respected. It should be cared for. We should be stewards of it. And that doesn't seem to be happening because there's the attitude that you can pollute a little bit. And I always equate it to the tray of brownies. If I offer you brownies and say, these are brownies and they're really good and you'll enjoy them. But if I tell you that these are brownies and I've just got a little bit of poop in them, you really don't want those brownies anymore. Uh, they're not safe. And, and I'm not talking about poop in the river. That is obviously an issue. I'm talking about the intentional it's okay to contaminate and pollute the river just a little bit. Um, and I don't think that that's ever, ever been the way it was supposed to be um, because that's not respect. Um, it's abuse. And, and that is my relationship with the river um, because we are going to, at some point in time, leave this for the generations that haven't come yet and we're going to leave them with something that won't be, it won't be what it was. And it won't be what it was intended to be. And it won't be safe for anything. I've been following this whole issue with um, the contamination of the river. Um, and I went to, you know, I went to Poop Matters, and, and it really does, because it's really bad to have that in your water. It can be removed, but I'm looking at a list of quantifiable PFAS that have been identified in the Waccamaw River at different test sites, and, and that, that just bothers me. It bothers me so much because it's bioaccumulative. It's not something that should be there to begin with. just shouldn't be there to begin with. It's still poop in the brownies. It's still bad. And 
I think for me as a steward, I need to say, that's not okay, so stop it. Because it's got to have a chance to heal. And you're not you're not doing that if you're saying we can keep discharging just a little bit. And we're not being responsible by saying it's okay. It's okay if I throw a little bit of trash out my window when I'm driving my car, isn't it? It's not. Mm-hmm. The Waccamaw meanders through one of the fastest growing areas on the East Coast. The populations of Ori and Georgetown counties combined grew by 62% between the year 2000 and the year 2018. This has led to land conversion that increases runoff, flooding, and pollutants into the Waccamaw River. You can sit here and say the law says this is what's supposed to happen. But again, when you don't have a very big voice and you're, you're, you're not able to uh, implement change. Cheryl works hard to have her voice heard and to educate communities about the impacts of PFAS. In her position as the chairperson of the Idle No More Committee for the South Carolina Indian Affairs Commission, she fights for the protection of the environment, land reclamation, and the repatriation of Native American artifacts and remains, and the preservation of sacred sites. And even though she constantly faces challenges to be heard and barriers to reestablish the connection between the Waccamaw Indian people and the river, for Cheryl, it's what has to happen. Why is it important? Because it's part of it. It's like going back to where you came from and that source of, of life for the people. You connect with that. There's a little bit of our ancestors left there. There's a little bit of who we are. And I think everybody needs to know for themselves who they are. Um, and where they came from and what what was important what you you miss so much if you just live in the here and now and that's it and here and now there's nothing wrong with living in the present but take a look at what it was that was important why it was important so that part is reconnecting to the river I can't really say what I have a vision for it but I do know that it's it's an important part of where we came from, um, of who we are. That we are a part of the river, but the river is also part of us. Thank you for listening to We Are Rivers, conversations about the rivers that connect us. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to rate and comment. Thank you to our interviewee today, Cheryl Seavers-Kale. If you want to learn more about the Waccamaw Indian people, their history, culture, and government, you can visit www.wacama.org. Today's episode was written and produced by Paige Buono, Janae Davis, and Faye Hartman, with support from American Rivers. This episode was developed in partnership with the National Park Service's Rivers, Trails, and Conservation Assistance Program. To learn more about RTCA and their programs, including the National Water Trails Program, visit www.nps.gov backslash watertrails. 
And you can find out more about American Rivers on the web at www.americanrivers.org.